to the InVino Fab Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. We're your host for the InVino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are tales that need to be told about women, wine, work, and what's happening in the world. This podcast was created to have a chat about a few of these things and more. Tune into this podcast to learn and share as we talk about passion projects, recent reads, and random wine facts. Today we welcome Helen Kara to the podcast. Dr. Kara has been an independent researcher since 1999 and writes and teaches on research methods. She's the author of Creative Research Methods in the Social Sciences, a practical guide put out by Policy Press in 2015. She is not and never has been an academic, though she has learned to speak the language. In 2015, Helen was the first fully independent researcher to be conferred as a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. She's also a visiting fellow at the UK's National Centre for Research Methods. Her latest book is Research Ethics in the Real World, Euro-Western and Indigenous Perspectives. Helen Kara has been one that I've been following on Twitter and Instagram to keep up with all the fantastic things that she's been doing. And I just want to welcome her to the podcast and say, how are you? How are things? I'm great. And it's good to be here. Things are good. We've been uh, following each other's work and lives for the last, we've tried to work this out before, but uh, five years maybe at least online. And so it's good. nice to have a little bit of a chat. Um, could you tell, you've done so many things that I think are amazing. So what I'm going to get you to do is to skim or bullet point uh, your CV to say uh, kind of what you've done in the world of work and life. Well, my goodness, there's been quite a lot of it because I'm very old. <laughs> I did a- I did a first degree in social psychology at the London School of Economics. That was a research-based degree. It was purely quantitative research. I had statistics for two hours every Monday morning for three years, which is quite cruel to undergraduates because I kind of quite like partying out and stuff also in those years. But I made it through the degree and that was fine. And then I was forget I was done with studying. I was really done with it by then. So I went to work and I had a bit of an overdraft. So I went and worked in the city of London, did four years in city companies doing training administration so I learned to deliver training courses I learned to mission training and to run training and to do all the organization for training and for events um, which was surprisingly useful um, ever since really and I also learned to be highly organized and good at time management Um, that has also been very helpful and while I was doing that I did voluntary work uh, with homeless young people in the west end of London every Friday night Um, Because really, I wanted to move into working with young people at that stage in my life. And I did my voluntary work experience help me alongside of my degree to get a post as a social worker, which I did for five years in the south of London, south London boroughs, uh, which were quite um, diverse inner city areas. I learned such a lot during that time also. But after five years, I realized that I either needed to get a social work qualification and make that my life, or I needed to change tack and really I decided to change tack because I've always had a butterfly mind. I'm interested in lots of different things. And so I got a job managing an urban regeneration project. The only problem was that in between resigning from one job and starting the next, the funder for my new job went bankrupt. So there was no funding to pay me a salary. So then I temped for a while and I retrained as a proofreader and copy editor and began to work freelance with publishers and I've been in London all this whole time, but then for personal reasons, I moved out of London to where I live now in Utoxeter, a small market town in Staffordshire that nobody has ever heard of, even if they're from England. (laughs) So while I was here, I was doing some voluntary work to kind of get to know people in the community. And I got a one day a week paid job through that. And I was also still doing my freelance work. And I had retrained again as a humanist funeral celebrant. 
So I was conducting humanist funerals and doing my proofreading and copy editing. It was all going fine. And then some people that I'd met asked if I would help them with a research project. And I said, yes, sure. Um, I kind of, I went to the library. This was 1999. So the internet hadn't really got off the ground fully. Uh, so I went to the library and checked out some books to um, revise my research skills and did this research project and got paid for it. And everyone was very pleased. And I thought it was a one-off. But in fact, word got around and I was asked to do more. And I really enjoyed it. So in the end, I gave up doing all the other things, except for the funeral work, which I did keep doing for the next 14 years um, until I kind of really burnt out with that as well. But I loved doing that. Um, and I could work that around my self-employment. So I also decided that I needed to upskill. I went and did a master's in social research methods and then went on to do a PhD with a strong methods component. Uh, got my PhD in 2006. And since then, I've really specialized in research methods and research ethics. And they're what I teach, and what I write about, particularly creative research methods. And um, I just find that so interesting. I've finally found the thing I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, we're going to get to a few things you talked about. But I think I started following you because I was at the point of my PhD. It must, it must have been near the end where I was, I was kind of like, where was this wonderful woman and her resources? Because you have a PhD, like how to get through it guide. And I was like, why am, why am I finding this now? Um, and I may have been at the end of my rope thinking, do I finish this thought or do I not? And yours was one of the books I started reading um, besides figure out like, what am I going to do after the, I get this degree? Like who cares? That's at the end. So, um, and the book is free and open access and online to download. It's called officially. The title is. The free one is starting your PhD. What you need to know, which may not intuitively sound like the smartest book to choose to read when you're towards the end of your PhD. Actually, people tell me that it does help you. There's also <laughs> one called finishing your PhD. So maybe that you picked up that one. I don't know. Um, but the free one is the starting your PhD one, because I figure it's partly about giving something back to the research community. It's partly part of my own marketing strategy. And it's partly a book that I wrote to help people figure out whether or not they want to do a PhD. And people may not at that point be in a position to invest in, you know, more expensive, bigger, more complicated book. But I kind of think doing a PhD is really hard. And I know some people who started and didn't finish, and actually it would have been better if they'd been more informed at the beginning and not started in the first place. So I partly wrote that book to help people who might be in that situation um, and others maybe helping them make the decision to go ahead and do a PhD. So it's really about that decision-making process. Yeah, I think that's why I appreciated following you on Twitter. She's at Dr. Helen Kara, and we'll put this information in the show notes for this episode. But I, because I think the idea is people are coming to me thinking, oh, you're seen to be doing okay in it because you talk about and you work out loud, which I like, like you're blogging, you're writing, even though you might have a wealth of books and articles and research published, you're also sharing how that goes about and your collaborative partnerships and things you're working on um, out loud. So we kind of know it's not just about marketing, like it's also telling your story and talking about the things people should know about and just good practical advice. And so um, I think I found that I did read yours. I've read a few of them. So I've given some away to students um, since or those thinking about because they're going to come up and say, should I be doing this? And I said, that's a loaded question if you should do a PhD. And thinking about like, well, what does this look like in practice for you and what kind of program and where do you want your life to go? Because maybe you don't need it. And you started researching without any a true research background you kind of got roped into it tell me about that like what kind of projects were you working on the very first project I worked on it was an evaluation of substance misuse training okay. across 
county of Staffordshire, which is a big rural county, well, big by UK standards, not big by US standards, but by UK standards, a big rural county. Uh, and at that time, the government had funded what they called drug action teams at county level, where they had people come together, like the police, educators, people who ran nightclubs, um, emergency services, all sorts of people who had something to do with or were affected by uh, misuse of drugs mm. um, and, other, and alcohol and other substances, but they were called drug action teams. And it was our local drug action team that commissioned this evaluation of the training that people in all of these different agencies were receiving around substance misuse. They wanted to know what was good, what worked well, where there were gaps, what they could do to improve those gaps. So I went around the whole county talking to staff in prisons and staff in hospitals and staff in schools and staff in third sector organisations, non-profits that were working to support um, people in the community um, and so on. And gathered a load of data, did a proper analysis, came up with some recommendations, and they were really happy with it. It was a fascinating project, actually. I did enjoy it. Um, it sounds like, based on what you're saying on this research project, um, you're really looking for practical um, implications and actions that can be taken into practice. So research that's action-based, I really like, because you're giving them recommendations, you're making suggestions. Um, it's kind of what we do as researchers, people don't realize that's a secret, um, and consultants do the same, but I think researchers have a good way to analyze and synthesize and have the practice of doing that work, groundwork, um, and gathering information and data, so that sucks you in, apparently, and you said, I like this, and I want more, and yeah. I do. I really like it. I like all the parts of it. I mean, I love the going and talking to people and the recommendations and stuff. One of my close girlfriends said to me, this is the perfect job for you, Helen. I said, oh, yeah, why is that? She said, you get paid to be bossy and nosy. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, but she's right, you know, she's right. Um, but I also love the analytic work and the interpretive work, which isn't about so much being bossy and nosy, but it's about being quite nerdy. Um, and collecting data and really doing that work thoroughly with qualitative data particularly. I like working with quantitative data too, but that's more sort of procedural, if you like. Uh, with qualitative data, it's perhaps a little more creative. Um, and of course, there's the importance of ensuring that bias doesn't creep in any more than you can help, which is not to say that I present myself as some kind of objective, neutral researcher, because I don't believe there is any such thing. You know, I do this work in this field because I care about it. And I might as well be upfront about that. But within that, I work as hard as I can and I use the tools at my disposal um, and the methods at my disposal to try to make sure that I acknowledge my own bias, make that open so that people can judge on that basis. But beyond that, the work that I do with data is very systematic, very methodical and very thorough. Um, and I like that because I feel confident in what I'm saying. Um, I might still be wrong. You know, this happens. Um, but if I've done my work thoroughly, and with confidence, and I've been open about my own biases, and I make, where possible, I make my data available now, as well as my findings, um, then I think that's, that's really positive. I think that's a good way to offer um, readers that are reading papers, and I've said this to my students, like, check what their uh, validity and how, how they can, they've checked their biases, and what does that look like, especially the qualitative. Are there, what are some of the resources that you first got started with? Because we always kind of pick up something in our research toolkits, and, the, and that led you down the path to start figuring out, well, like, how can I best do this qualitative work, and what am I interested in? So what are some um, resources and things that you picked up to help you um, hone your craft in this area? One of the um, very earliest was a book on grounded theory. It's one of the Corbin, I don't, it's Corbin and Strauss, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but they have some great techniques like the red flag technique and the flip-flop technique. 
um, these kind of, they're, they're kind of mind games in a sense, but they're quite structured mind games for giving you different ways to think about things. It's a little bit like what I'm more inclined to do these days is collaborate with another human being on my data analysis, not necessarily for the whole of it. In fact, very often not because the resources aren't there. But if I can sit down with someone else just for a little while and say, what do you see in this data? Oh, really? I see this and have that conversation, that discussion. That widens my own perspectives in the way that the exercises suggested by Corbin and Strauss did too. Corbin and Glazer, I think it was. I can find the reference for your show notes if that would yeah. be helpful. Do that uh, later. Yeah, definitely. I think I know the book you're talking about. Can you give an example to our listeners uh, what a red flag or a flip-flop might be um, as an approach? So explain how you might use it. It might be like, for example, if you're working with a set of data um, and you get, so you you might get a very normative comment, oh, that's not how we do things around here. And that would kind of be a red flag for thinking, well, hang on a minute, what what is how they do things around here? What's that saying? What does that really mean? Let's not just take that rather throwaway dismissive comment at face value. Let's use that. So strong words, sometimes like never or always, are quite useful as red flags. We get those in, in data. Of course, this only applies to verbal textual data, other ways of working with other data. But if you get someone who says, oh, we always this or we never that or I never the other thing. Um, because actually, as humans, it's very rarely always or never. It's much more often nuance and sometimes and it depends. Right. So a red flag for stuff that people aren't really thinking about fully um, those kind of things are the, the kind of red flags I look for. But another more recent resource that I like is the online um, privilege calculator. I don't know if you've come across this. Yeah, tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. It's, it's a, a tool. I think there are about 100 different questions that you answer, and it calculates um, the level of your privilege. Now, obviously, this is to some extent a blunt instrument, um, but it's not as blunt as others might be. And it's helpful if you're starting to think, as in the last few years I've been starting to think, about where my biases come from, about where I'm advantaged and where I'm disadvantaged, because it's not a binary thing. We're not privileged or not privileged. Most people, I mean, there probably a few. There probably are people in the world who are, you know, almost wholly privileged or almost wholly not privileged. But for most, most of us, it's a mix. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like for me, I'm white, I'm educated, I'm articulate, I'm tall. Those are all indicators of privilege. I'm female, I have disabilities, I'm older. These are areas where I'm less privileged or in some cases not privileged in some situations. So it's a mix it's, and it's interesting to think about how that affects the work that I do. Doing that reflexive work has come into my practice much more in the last sort of 15 years or so, I guess, uh, really since my doctoral study. Um, and that's something I've never really stopped thinking about working with uh, for myself and how it affects my, my work with others. No, it sounds like you have put a lot of work into thinking about your positionality of the researcher. I think it's really interesting. And you're right, collaborative work and partnerships um, have been beneficial to me. I I can't not think of a time that I wasn't working with someone, especially with qualitative work. So um, making sure that we have uh, different people and eyes and voices being heard and also reviewing that data, because I think it does say something like, so I'm going to put that online privilege calculator into the show notes, because I think that'll be helpful resource for people who have not seen it. So thank you for mentioning that. Thinking about um, your, your winding path, uh, I was thinking about your celebrant uh, position as a humanist. So uh, I know a humanist or two. I've, I've been married by one. How did you get exposed and get involved in pastoral care? I did. Well, I've conducted several hundred funeral services over the 14 years that I was doing it. How I got into that was in my 
late twenties, um, a couple of friends died separate, not se- not together separately, but in quite a short period of time, I had a couple of friends die in you know sad circumstances as it always is when it's younger people. Um, and each of them was not a religious person, and each of them had a religious funeral. And in each funeral, it didn't really seem to be about the person that I knew or anything to do with the person that I knew, and it made me quite angry. And I was so I ranted about that a lot to people at the time. And one of the people I ranted to was my mother because. You know, she's quite good for ranting about stuff too. Um, and after a while, she she called me on the phone, landline phone, that's all we had in those days, um, in the mid-1990s. And she said, darling, I'm going to send you a book. I found a book. I think it'll be interesting to you. I'm not going to tell you more. I'm just going to send you a book. All right, mother, fine. So she put this book in the post and it arrived. And it was called The Dead Good Funeral Guide. And it was a book about um, alternative ways of celebrating or commemorating uh, when people die. And in the middle of it, it talked about the humanist funerals, which were just beginning to get off the ground here in the UK at that time, and that you could do a training. So I applied for the training and did it. And uh, it was fascinating. You don't necessarily pass. So it was quite, they're quite stringent because it's not the right thing for some people to do, or somebody might just not be in the right place at that particular time and might, it might not be the right time for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did through and uh, started doing funerals up here in, when, when I moved up here in the Midlands. And I had a mentor, um, who I went on because you go to visit a family and talk to them about what they want and h- listen to what they have to say and guide them through the process of planning a ceremony. And the way we do it here in the UK is it can be very simple or very complex. It can be, um, I mean, I could do the whole ceremony for them or they could do it and I could just be a kind of mistress of ceremonies um, to help the whole thing go smoothly. All sorts of creative options, which I really enjoyed. And um it was such a privilege, really, to work with people at that very vulnerable, personal time and to hear stories of people and their lives that I would have never otherwise have heard and, and to go into people's homes. And, I mean, I went into the homes from pretty much the poorest to the, probably not the very richest, but close. You know, it could be one day I could be going to a really down at heel little ramshackle, not even a, you know, like a mobile home, um, mm-hmm. what you might call a trailer, I guess. Or um, another day, I might be going to a very, you know, very well-appointed place down a very long drive where the door's opened by a member of staff and I'm ushered in and given tea and china cups. And, um, you know, it's just, but everybody grieves the same. It doesn't matter what your house is like. If you've lost someone you love, uh, then you're, you know, you're in distress and you need someone to come. You probably, I think not everyone, some people can do it completely by themselves, And I did advise, there were some people who called me and said, look, we actually want to do this just ourselves, but can we ask you some questions? And I'd be like, yes, of course, that's fine. Um, But most people are glad of someone to take the lead and to to kind of hold the space during that ceremonial time um, and help them say the goodbye that they want to say. It's kind of an interesting role that you're um, sort of a guide. You're also there as a in a council sort of format, you're also there just as an ear, maybe an unbiased person in, in the midst of who knows what kind of family situation, um, if any. And it's something that we don't talk about, at least in uh, like in North America, I don't think we do it very well, death and how, we, how we're going to leave this place. And it's not until something happens that people take action. And it, it's funny that um, you brought not funny haha but interesting that you brought it up uh that that's what you did because I was like that's such a deep work that people don't often talk about or express the idea of death and how how do you want to say goodbye and I was thinking about it there's a a TED podcast that talked about 
how people say goodbye in different ways and how we don't really talk about that or we don't really want to think on that, but it's bound to happen to all of us. Uh, we are living longer, but it's something we should have conversations about now and how do we want to do that? And what a, what an amazing experience I'm sure you've had to be there to share that space with people. And yeah. It was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. It did get to the point where I'd had enough really after 14 years or after about 13 and a half years. And then it took a while to you know wind it down. Um, but for all of that time, it was a, it was amazing and it was a privilege and it did make me feel different and think differently about the whole topic. And you're right, we don't talk enough about it. And it's, I mean, it's worse than that. Even sometimes people will cross the street to avoid a bereaved person because they're too scared. They don't know what to say. But actually, you know, it's worse to do that than just to go up to them and go, I don't know what to say. I'm really sorry and put your arms around them or just listen to them talk for a while. Yeah. Um, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. And I kind of think we, we use euphemisms. People talk about, you know, you passed over. They didn't pass over. They died. We die. We stop living. That's what happens. It's what's going to happen to me. It's what's going to happen to you. And I hope it's not going to happen to either of us anytime soon. But, you know, it is going to happen. And I think, you know, we do, we do better to, to acknowledge. And it makes it so much easier for the people left behind if they've had that conversation and they know what the person wanted. It doesn't have to be in great graphic detail, but at least to know that they want this kind of funeral, that kind, because I mean, I think humanist funerals are great if that's what you want, but if you're religious, then obviously you want to need a funeral within your religion. Um, I'm not an anti-religion humanist. There are some, but I'm not one. Um, I'm very much of the belief that uh, we live in a diverse world and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so in fact, I did a double act with a vicar once. That was kind of nice. <laughs> um, because a guy who died was an atheist like me. His wife, was religious and he used to go to church with her Easter and Christmas um, just as a sort of solidarity thing as part of their relationship and um, she felt very strongly that she wanted a humanist funeral for him but she wanted some element of religion for her so I worked with her local vicar and we did a double act stood each side of the coffin and I would say a bit and he would say a bit and we made it very clear you know that we were there to be inclusive of everyone and represent these different views that was a lovely ceremony. I'm not sure. I, th I suspect not all of my humanist colleagues would have felt comfortable, and I suspect not all vicars would either. Mm -hmm. um, but he was a lovely vicar. He was very open-minded. We had some great conversations. And, um, yeah, that was a good one. I think that's great. Um, and I'm sorry, we didn't explain to our listeners what humanist means. Um, and I don't know how um, you define it. Like, I think of it as um, how you commune with others and people. But how do, how are you, how do you define humanist? If people are saying, well, what is humanism humanist well i don't i'm not sure i really know either um, <laughs> it's uh it's about it's it's kind of i mean i am an atheist but you can be an agnostic humanist you can be a quaker humanist you can be you know there's all sorts of different kinds of humanists mm -hmm. but i think it's not about i think people, there was for a time an idea that to be a good person you had to be a religious person and I think it's about pushing against that and saying, actually, you can live a good life without religion or belief if that's the way you're made um, or if that's the way you are. And I think also sometimes people change their beliefs. I mean, I was brought up Catholic and in my teenage years, I decided that that wasn't for me. It felt like, you know, not really real. And I think partly because there's absolutely no place for women in the Catholic Church and I was a woman and... There's no place for people other than, I mean, if you know, if you get confirmed as a woman, you have to pick a saint's name and you can either have a virgin, a widow or a martyr. Those are the three options. Um, and I didn't really identify with any of those when I was like 11. 
Um, so it's a it's a bit of weird, a bit of a weird one. But so I think humanist feels like what I am. I'm pro-human. I like people. I think there's much more good in people than bad. I think you can live a good life without religion if you want to. I think you can live a good life with with religion too if you want to, if that's what works for you. And I think you can live a bad life as a humanist or a religious person. I don't think, you know, good or bad is linked to your belief or system or whether you don't have one. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's about people. It's about being positive about people. I like that. I think uh, you're right. It's all a spectrum. We're not this or that. Um, we fall, different parts of us fall different places. It sounds like, though, a lot of like this, these experiences in your communing with people to think about their closures of family and how they deal with death and dying actually does inform some of your work as a researcher if you're doing qualitative work because it's the same sort of attributes that are also transferable like you're listening you need to know where things are at you're trying to unpack things um so i don't know if one informed the other but for me i i guess i get some instance of when i talk with people on the podcast uh, it, it informs how i do research and inquiry when i research later with with a uh, participant so do they influence one another do you find that coming into your work these days or yeah since you're not doing the humanist work anymore yeah yeah no I think they do because the in the humanist work I would go to see a family spend time with them collect information mm -hmm. take it away perhaps collect other information from other people or other sources um and then it wasn't so much there wasn't the analytic work in the same way as with research but it would be about collecting information then making it into a narrative so I could feed it back to them and and sometimes I felt like it was odd because I would go to someone's house and they would tell me a load of stuff and I would write it down in my laptop with my speedy typing fingers and I would turn it into a nice narrative and go back go off to the crematorium and or whatever venue they'd chosen and and tell them all the stuff they'd already told me and then they would say to me afterwards that was marvelous and I think <laughs> I told you all the stuff you already told me last week Okay, and this is why Helen can do a really good literature, literature review. It's collecting the data, making a synthesis, and telling a good narrative. And that's what I think really good quality writers and researchers do is, is, is share that um, story really well. And those that do it well, people enjoy reading. And I can see why people come, come back to reading some of your books and stories as well. So you're synthesizing what is known uh, from a family or from maybe a research group or whatever, research participants, and then you're giving it back so people in a readable, I guess, chunk size uh, form that people can digest and understand and interpret. That's what I try to do. I mean, I've always loved writing and I've had some short stories published. I've done some fiction as well as fact. And I guess that narrative skill comes through. It certainly helps when I'm trying to write academic journal articles. Um, there was a great post on the LSE blogs just the other day about the similarity between um, fictional short stories and academic journal articles. I'll get you the link of that for your oh, show notes. Ooh, yeah. Nice resource for people to have. Um, what kind of short stories? Let, let's hear about that genre before we jump into, I was like, what kind of short stories are you writing? What's your genre? I'm not writing short stories at the moment, but I spent some years as part of a closed group online uh, where we, we were called Story a Fortnight Group and it was on a closed blog and we each posted a story each fortnight up to 2,000 words and then we critiqued each other's stories. And we built up such a good level of trust. It was all women. And we built up such a good level of trust. And to begin with, we were quite tentative. We sort of said all the things we thought were good and kept quiet. And then one of the mem one of the group, I remember, after two or three goes of this, she said, look, we're going to have to get a bit tougher than this. We need to start, you know, getting tough with each other and talking about giving proper critiques now. 
And she was right. And we did. And we built up so much trust. And some of that group have gone on to be professional novelists. And I follow their progress. And a lot of um, most of us are still in contact. And some of us meet up. You know, I think, we, you know, all of us meet up, but not all at the same time because we're in different locations and so on. But we do meet up. And I learned such a lot from that group. And it was great. And I had a few stories published in women's magazines. I have one in an anthology that's on Amazon. Um, and I also wrote some, I also placed in some competitions, which was kind of fun. I have a, I have a backlog of a bunch of stories that I really should do something with, but it's, it's like time and everything. Oh, <laughs> one day, yeah, okay. We could find more of that. That would be great. <laughs> yes, please. I want one of those things Hermione has in Harry Potter, you know, that turny thing that means she can go back and do those three hours again. And I really, really want one of those. I'll see what we can do. Uh, we don't give away door prizes on the pod, but if we find some, we'll send them on your way. <laughs> I, I think that's it's brilliant. I think there are some ways that it sounds like your path may have been weaved a little bit in your what you're doing now. And now you're doing work in a lot of collaborative writing partnerships, uh, research and writing, and you're consulting a bit. So it seems like you kind of learned these things from time management, organization back in your early training days and social work um, to what you're doing now. Um, actually, compliment where you are at and what you found in your joy of research and writing. So that's fantastic. I think so. And I think having a rich experience of life is helpful when you're a researcher, um, which is not to say that people in their early years can't do really good research because they sure can. Um, but I think, you know, dif different experiences that you can bring and different skills that you can bring. This is something I talk about quite a lot in my book on creative research methods mm -hmm. is that actually research doesn't have to be separate. I mean, this whole idea that we have one saleable skill per person is actually a very new idea. And historically, you were, there are many examples of people in history who might be an astronomer and a musician and a textile artist, and you could be all of those things. Or you could be a mathematician and a poet. Nobody thought that was weird back in the day. Just be like, oh, he's a cool dude, he does these things. <laughs> to get back to that, because I think if you're doing research... If you have other skills to bring, it doesn't matter what they are. You might be good at ice skating or tree surgery, but that will bring richness to the research that you do. That will bring different perspectives. And trying to keep it out is so artificial. I'm not trying to say that if you're a researcher, you can do it all on the ice rink or up in the branches of an oak tree. Um, but it's, it's about not trying to do the separating. The separating is so artificial. We need to be able to bring all of ourselves to our research work, and then we'll get richer and better results. I would agree. You can't compartmentalize what you do. And I think it, it one complements the other more than people think. And we're not just single whatever researchers. We're interesting people, I would hope. Um, and we'll put a link to your book. Creative research, I think, is valued and needed. And we need more of it to interpret and share and share publicly because not all people read academic work, snore. Uh, we need to interpret it into other, like explain to the general public, explain to uh, people that are in governments that are making policies that are doing things in practice that they can consume this research in a way that's going to put value to their work and their roles um, and what they do as well. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. No, it's so, a pleasure. I think you're dead right. I mean, there's some very creative methods of disseminating research, mm. which do make it way more engaging um, and way more fun for the audience or for anyone, you know, who's listening and trying to take that in. So, for example, there was, uh, if you can imagine, a, a two-volume health and safety report that ran to hundreds of pages, which, frankly, nobody was ever going to read, because <laughs> why would you? Um, but fortunately... There were a couple of academics who worked together to turn it into a play, 
to turn it into a drama. And it was dramatic because it was prompted by a school shooting, which is, you know, school shootings are just horrendous things. They're just horrible. I think everybody thinks that. We probably best not start talking about gun control or we'll go right off track. Um, <laughs> but these, these two women, one was a drama professional, certainly one, I think one was a playwright and one was um, experienced in producing drama as well as they were both academics. I can't just now remember their names, but I'll find them again. You can put the reference on the show notes. And they produced this half-hour play from these, this, these two massive volumes of her health and safety report. They produced a half-hour drama that really engaged the audience and that got the messages across. And that's so creative. That's so much a better way than saying to people, here, look, two big volumes. Go away and read those, and then you'll understand. Um, and there's so much more like that that we can do, you know, with art, with film, with poetry, with music, with performance, with interpretive dance even. When I'm teaching creative research methods, I like to, uh, I like to say to my students in the morning about interpretive dance, and I do a little dance first, and I say, we'll be doing interpretive dance this afternoon. And I just watch their faces because it gives me so much <laughs> to watch the horror creep across. And then I go, no, it's all right. I'm only joking. We're not really. And the relief is phenomenal. It's probably a little naughty of me, but anyway, it amuses me. I think that's great. And I, I think you're right. Like, I don't believe that we need to uh, separate some of this to make things um, practical and understood and read. Like, where people find you their information, they're going to search some big search engine that's in charge of another big platform of videos and audio and whatnot. So why aren't we putting things out there that's proper knowledge? And we don't need to lock up our academic research in a canon anymore. Like, we, we need to share this. And scholarly communication... Um, is a big, it's a big interest of mine. So I'm a big fan of this. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Well, so, and speaking of search yeah. engines, if I yes. may say one thing about that, because I've just read uh, a fabulous book called Algorithms of Oppression um, by Safia Umurja Noble, who's an amazing scholar. And I've reviewed this for the LSE blog. So there's quite a detailed review on there. But she proves, certainly to my satisfaction, that search engines are commercially biased and are not neutral. Many members of the public think if you go to a search engine, you get the most popular um, result at the top, the one that most people want to see and want to read. You don't get, you, you get the one that pays the most or the one that's smart enough to do search engine op optimization uh, most effectively. And I think as researchers, we really need to be aware of this. I mean, academics and universities are still telling students to go and use search engines. Um, and telling them that the information they get will be unbiased. It's, it's as bad as using Wikipedia as a primary source. I mean, okay, you might use it as a starting point. You might use it to find some stuff, but then you need to go beyond that. I would say Wikipedia is, um, actually fuels most of uh, Google searches, and uh, wiki educators um, do try to, it's, it's still a wild world web there, try to track that more, but you're right, we need to be relying on resources that are at our institutions, whether you're in an academic or at a public library, um, those are, librarians can tell you how to actually get to the information you need, and then there's all these digital collections um, that I'm learning about that are just vast resources that are actual knowledge instead of that may not get buried until the second page of whatever you search. And thank you for sharing that book. It's a great read. Um, we'll put a link in the show and we'll put a link to your book review as well if people want to get the highlights because I think it's definitely um, an important read that we need to be aware of, um, especially as we teach uh, information literacy, digital fluency um, to, our, to our students as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you're probably working on loads of things, and I know you are because we had a chat before the show. Um, but what is there a project or an idea that's kind of percolating for you now that you want to share with our listeners that 
uh, something to, that you're working on now or you want to say that's coming out uh, in the future you want to share with them? You know, I have such a butterfly mind I, and I work with different collaborators. One thing I love is that I'm not constrained in the way that I would be if I was in an academic job. So right now, I am literally collaborating with forensic scientists and comics professors and all sorts of people in between. But one project I'm really loving is uh, working with a geographer, uh, Professor Richard Phillips from the University of Sheffield, uh, who's a lovely guy. And he actually reached out to me because he'd read my book on creative research methods. He emailed me last year about this time and said, hello, I've read your book. I liked your book. I would like you to do some work with me and I have some money. And as an independent researcher, that always means he goes to the top of the priority list if, he's, if he can actually pay me for my time. Um, so he had some money left from a funding bid and he asked if I would help him um, plan and facilitate an event about creative writing in social research. And this was absolute music to my ears. So we did a two-day event in November in Sheffield at the university and he essentially we met beforehand and we, we basically made lists of all our mates who we wanted to invite and there were some names on both lists but then there were some that only were on his list or only on mine so then we talked about those and explained to each other why we thought they're important their work was important said, yeah 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 so then we invited all of them of course not all of them could make it but enough could and um, we had a great two-day event we didn't advertise it it was just invitation only um and we had everyone do a 20-minute presentation but presentation in the widest sense so some of them were performances, some of them were little quick interactive or participatory pieces of work. Um, some were stories, some were, they were just very varied, but they were all in a sense writing or had been written first. Um, and we had a, an eminent professor came to give a sort of a kind of a keynote to, to set, us, set the scene and, and set us off. And she actually stayed for the whole two days. Um, and we had such a good time. And now we're producing a book um, and it's not the classic book after the event where you have everyone do a little chapter. People are making, doing short contributions, but we're, Richard and I are writing the majority of the book and incorporating, and, and the contributions are creative. They're kind of demonstrating, illustrating uh, what we're talking about. So one's in poetry. Uh, we're also going to have a website where we can put video and music um, because clearly we can't put those in the pages of a book, but they need to be there. So that's just a lovely project. And that will be with Policy Press, who's my main publisher. They're a not-for-profit in the UK. Uh, they're distributed in the US by uh, Chicago University Press. Okay. Uh, they're, they're quite a new publisher. They're only 20-something years old, 22, 23 years old, maybe. Um, but they're expanding. They're doing, they have a real social justice ethos, which I like a lot. Uh, and I like the fact that they're a not-for-profit. So, you know, I'm not contributing to the profit, what goes into shareholders' pockets. If I'm contributing to anything, I'm contributing to that publisher who are doing such good work that I'm very happy to be, be part of that process. Uh, and they're great to work with. So, yeah, that's, that's my favorite project right now. Oh, that's a great. Thanks for sharing that. And it's helpful to learn um, also where you're like kind of publishing because we don't talk about that enough. And also um, as, as a researcher that's not attached to an institution, I can only imagine besides financial challenges, there's other challenges you face about access to other information or files or journals and things like that. What, what, how do you overcome some of these issues or challenges you might see? Um, Cause I could care less if I was attached to an institution really, but there's things that come that are of privilege when you are um, a researcher in a certain campus or lab or center. So how have you overcome some of those challenges? By having honorary fellowships 
Um, so the first one I got was in 2012, and that was the third sector research centre at the University of Birmingham. And really, they were advertising for associates, and I applied, and they took me on. Um, I hadn't even published a book then, um, but I explained to them what, I, what I'd been doing, and they were interested because of all the applied research that I'd done, and they felt that was the complementary to some of their academic work and that my experience had something useful for them. So their funding situation changed, I think, in 2015 or 2016, and they had to stop having associate fellows. They didn't have the um, ability to support their, their group of fellows anymore. So then I went to the National Centre for Research Methods. By then I'd got two books out, so I had more of a profile. And I knew the deputy director of the National Centre for Research Methods. So I emailed her and said, hey, can I come and be, a, you know, the TSRC thing's going down the pan. Can I come and be a fellow at your place? And she emailed back and said, we don't have associate fellows. We don't have honorary positions. And I thought for a minute, and I thought, am I going to leave it there? And I thought, no, I'm not going to leave it there. So I emailed back and said, well, would you like one if it was me? <laughs> Bless her. She went and talked to the director and came back and said, actually, you know what, we think we would like one if it was you. Um, so I was able to be associated with them. Now, they're in the same position now. Their funding structure is changing. Um, so I need to move on again. So I've talked to Methods of Manchester, um, which is closer to me geographically anyway, so it's a little more convenient. And I'm sorry, really, I mean, if, if, if the National Centre for Research Methods was continuing as it was, I would stay with them because they're a terrific group of people. They've given me so much support. They really supported my ethics book that came out last November. They were so helpful. And that was a hard, hard book to write. I never could have done it without the input and the support that I got from them. Um, but that is happening. So I did look for somewhere else and went and knocked on the door at Methods at Manchester. Hello, can I come and be an associate fellow with you? Um, and they've been very nice about it. So now we're just filling in all the forms and getting it organised. So I'll be moving to that, uh, that institution. Um, but the honorary fellowships give me access to literature, give me access to people, bits of mentoring, expertise. Um, and I give what I can give. Um, depends what they want and what they need. I mean, the first fellowship, I did quite a lot of co-authoring and worked on some paid projects where they needed more helps I got paid for some stuff which was great but the second one it's been training that I do for them at a cut rate and helping at events and stuff and with this third one I don't know what it'll be we're going to talk about that once on, once we've you know finalized the the bureaucracy um, but yeah that's that's how I do it no that's and that's helpful to know um, there's not always those opportunities in the U.S. but I think that we have researchers independently that find other sources um, so and you said this too like teaching or they've been looking at other ways to find funding i wish we had more in the academy that had just different roles and opportunities like not everyone wants to go through tenure not everyone wants to just do a teaching track but maybe you could have people that are co-sponsored or visiting scholars i've seen more of those um but they're always in, they always seem to be international visiting scholars at our campus so i'd like to see more of what you're talking about at institutions and and maybe it is doing what you're doing is asking or saying have you thought of or would you like me to work with you um i think that's a great approach so note to self i'm putting that note in my pocket so that's good great um, but also, of course it doesn't have to be a position in your own country because it's electronic resources we can all work online so you could get a visiting fellowship from where you are you could get one in the uk or in australia um because they do them in australia as well so that's something to think about that's good to know no it's helpful um all right so before we wrap up i would be ashamed not to ask you what's your favorite um beverage of choice or wine of choice if you go to that when you like to gather with friends colleagues and whatnot for uh, social times well I really love wine so this is a good question for me 
And my, I think my favourite wine in the whole world is probably one that I can't afford and have never drunk because I can't afford it. But of the ones that I can afford and do drink from time to time, there is a particular one I particularly love. It's a sparkling wine from the south of France, sparkling white wine. And it's called Blanquette de Limoux. It's from the Ariège region in the foothills of the Pyrenees in southwestern France. It's a very beautiful place, uh, which I learned, to, I learned about because my aunt and uncle bought a very ramshackle old farmhouse there about... 30 years ago, um, which I've slowly done up over the years. And uh, I learned about this wine first when I visited them there, simply because it was a local wine. Now I can buy it in the UK. Now I can buy it in my local store in my local town. But at that time, that, that wasn't possible. And it is believed to be the first sparkling wine ever in the world. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they say. Um, but it's a very light. Maybe it is. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. So it's Blanquette de Mouet. Blanquette de Limoux. I'll write you the spelling after we finish because it's a, one of those French things that's, um, yeah. But it's a lovely one. It's a light sparkle. It's very light tasting. You can drink quite a lot of it. Good. It sounds like a perfect summertime wine. So we'll share that with our listeners. Um, is there any sort of story or things that are resonating with you lately or maybe a book, a favorite book or article or something you've heard, seen, watched that you want to share with our listeners that might be interesting for them to pick up and check out? Well, my current favourite book, I'm a great lover of speculative fiction, i.e. science fiction and fantasy type books. And I read an amazing book, which I think is underrated, and I don't know why. It's, there's actually a trilogy, and each one of these trilogy books won a Hugo Award. So I don't know why it's not being more widely read and more widely talked about. But the author is it's actually an American author, M.K. Jemisin, and she has written this incredible trilogy about the world falling apart and it's just very her imaginative powers are phenomenal and the first book is called the fifth season and it's just an incredible tour de force of amazingly written literature that I think probably most people would enjoy unless they don't like that genre in which case read something else I feel like some of the speculative fiction um, and that one in particular people try to escape these days for some reason not sure why. Uh, it's not close to reality when the world's coming to an end. Oh, okay. So, uh, no, that's good. I'm going to put that in my pocket for later. So thank you for the recommendation. And before we wrap up, is there anything these days that is bringing you joy or that's making you smile? Yeah, working around comics. I love working around comics. I've been a reader of comics and graphic novels all my life since I was a kid and still now. People think they're just for children, but they're not. And I'm quite passionate about, I think there's a big role potentially for comics to play in education and in teaching uh, research methods, because there's a big gap between the classroom and practice and helping to bridge that gap. That's one of the great things about comics is they can take you into places that you wouldn't otherwise get to go. So I made a little comic last year, which is another free to download thing. Uh, it's called Conversation with a Purpose. It's on my website and it's about qualitative interviewing. It supports the teaching of qualitative interviewing it contains discussion questions. It's very short. It's only 12 pages. You can print it out. It's a PDF. Um, and you can print it if there's instructions for how to print it. So you just get it off the printer, fold it, and it's good to go. Um, so that was fun. But I've now written a journal article, which is being drawn by some colleagues in Australia who are comics professionals and will be published in the Journal of Comics and Graphic Novels. And that's really exciting and fun and brings me joy. And every time I get to work with comics people, and get to work on comics. I can't draw for toffee. I'm rubbish at drawing. I can draw the curtains. That's about it. 
Um, but I love to write. I love to write stories and I can write for comics. I know how to write for that form. And I love to write for that form. I don't care if it's just a little comic comic or a journal article. It was so fun doing a journal article as a comic because the whole thing is literally a comic, but it's actually about how to, um, how to record and um, I can't think of the word, how to record a conference and then present it back to people in some format. Um, it's, it's, it's about a thing. It's not just a you know, little story of like Dennis the Menace or something. It's, it's, it's about a real thing. So that was really fun to work on. I've also been working on another comic, but that might have to stay a little secret for a while. I might have to come back and tell you about that. No, that's great. Uh, for those who did not know that the Journal of Comics and Graphic Novels existed, you're going to now look at it, uh, along with the wealth of resources that Helen shared with us. I am a big fan. I think graphic novels can definitely share um, a different way a story and bring other, bring other readers in. And that's something I really think is really key for literacy. Um, what was the first comic you read? Do you remember? I used to read Wizard and Chips. There was a comic in the UK called Wizard and Chips that I used to get with my pocket money every week. And I loved it and had lots of little comic strips that continued from week to week. So I'd be like, oh, what's this character doing this week? And what's happening? And little quizzes to do and stuff. It was a staple of my childhood years. Not published anymore. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. But uh, I loved it so much when I was a child. No, oh, that's great. I, I've heard, I have heard of it. Uh, can I get some UK influence for some reason? And uh, we, uh, <laughs> we, did, we did have that over, over, over the pond. Um, Helen, there's been so much you've shared with our audience. We really appreciate you coming on the pod and you're welcome back anytime. If you want to bring friends, you want to tell us more about the comics that's secret. Uh, yeah, any future projects, you're welcome to come back. But thank you so much for joining us and sharing all about your career path and interesting ways that you've found research or research found you. So I think it's great. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. Be sure to catch the next podcast episode by subscribing to the In Vino Fab wherever you find and subscribe to podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab and we'll always welcome love and messages by email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers!